You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. Today is Monday, the 21st of September, and I'm here in New York City, which, as you may have heard, Bill Barr's Justice Department has now declared an anarchist jurisdiction, which means this place is in chaos. That's why I'm wearing sandals with socks. No rules, baby. Anyway, on tonight's show, we'll look at the inspiring life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as well as the somewhat less inspiring madness that has broken out in the wake of her death. And then we will talk to Dr. Fauci himself to find out just how screwed America really is. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Right now, the only news America is talking about is the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, AKA the notorious RBG. And as I'm sure you know, the iconic Supreme Court justice died over the weekend at the age of 87. And a little bit later on in the show, we're gonna be talking about her life and her legacy. But first, we have to start with the all-out war brewing over her replacement. Because you may remember, that when Justice Antonin Scalia died nine months before the 2016 election, and President Obama tried to replace him with Merrick Garland, Mitch McConnell and the GOP blocked it. And their reasoning was that a Supreme Court vacancy so close to an election should be held for the next president so that the people can decide. Well, you might want to sit down for this one because guess what they're saying now? President Donald Trump and his Republican allies are forging full speed ahead to nominate a successor, in some cases, defying promises they made four years ago to do the exact opposite if the situation arose. Less than 24 hours after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died Friday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell vowing President Trump's nominee to replace her will get a vote in the Senate. President Trump says he will put forward his nominee this week. When you have the Senate, when you have the votes, you can sort of do what you want as long as you have it. Well, there you have it, folks. When you have the Senate, you can do whatever you want. Trump is right. It's basically the, when you're a star, they let you do it, but of judicial appointments. It's truly amazing how Mitch McConnell's rules keep changing. First it was, oh, we can't nominate a Supreme Court justice during an election year. And then it's like, oh, asterisks, that rule doesn't apply when we have the White House, meh. Yeah, don't be shocked when Mitch McConnell comes out like, how come the Supreme Court is a lifetime appointment, but our great president is not? You guys feel me? You guys, you guys picking up what I'm putting down? And speaking of lifetime appointments, I can't believe that Donald J. Trump, Donald J. Trump, people, gets to name three justices to the Supreme Court. The guy can't even name three branches of government, but he gets to name three justices who serve for life. This is the same guy who's had to fire everyone he's hired because of how bad he is at hiring people for life. Trump can't even pick his own partner for life, but he gets to do it for America? Wow, this country's rock and roll. Now, I don't think anybody's surprised that Senate Republicans said one thing when Obama was president and another thing when it's Trump. I mean, you can't even call them inconsistent, you know? Doing whatever it takes to get his way is the one consistent principle that Mitch McConnell lives by. You know, it's that and eating baby birds right out of the nest. But still, it has been pretty incredible 
watching some of these senators abandon their past promises. And no one was abandoning harder than a senior senator from South Carolina and assistant manager at Chick-fil-A, Lindsey Graham. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham's own words are coming back to haunt him. He's now vowing to support President Trump in any effort to move forward in filling Ginsburg's seat before the election. But here's what he said back in 2016 when President Obama was in office. I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. We're setting a precedent here today, Republicans are, that you're not gonna fill a vacancy of the Supreme Court. That's gonna be the new rule. And he repeated this in 2018. If an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process is started, we'll wait to the next election. You're on the record. Yeah. All right. Hold the tape. Okay. Okay, look. I know he looks like a giant hypocrite and an asshole right now, but in Lindsey Graham's defense, he didn't know this would happen. It's the same way you say, oh, you know, if I won the lottery, I I would give most of the money to an orphanage. I, I don't need it that much. Yeah, but then when you actually win the lottery, you're knocking down the orphanage so you can build an extra garage for your cars. Uh, unlike a child, a Bugatti can't sleep outside. Honestly, I can relate to Lindsay here. Sometimes I tell myself that I'm not gonna eat another Oreo. No more Oreos. And then I totally overturn Roe v. Wade. I have like no willpower, guys. I will say though, what really doesn't help Lindsey Graham is that he explicitly said, I want you to use my words against me. So creepy. Sounds like some kind of weird Senate version of BDSM. That's right. You take that sentence and you play it back to me. You play it hard and you make me feel ashamed. Yeah, you make me feel real bad with that tape. You just keep playing it to me. Now, there are a couple of Republican senators who have said that they don't support filling the seat before the election. But pretty much every other senator seems to be fine with blatant hypocrisy. And it's easy to see why. I mean, a solid conservative majority on the Supreme Court could kill Obamacare, could undo abortion rights, and basically strike down any liberal policies for decades to come. Even after Trump leaves, his legacy will be in the country for decades. It's like if someone came into your house just to say, hey, but they had stepped in dog shit right before entering. Now it's deep in the carpet and legally doesn't have to leave until it wants to. So facing Trump's third Supreme Court appointment in less than four years, what's left for the Democrats to do? Well, Joe Biden is asking Republican senators to follow their conscience, which I'm pretty sure is exactly what Republicans are doing. I mean, this is like telling Hannibal Lecter to go with his gut. You about to lose your face. To help me get a handle on the hypocrisy of the GOP senators, I'm gonna turn to a man who can't pronounce hypocrisy, Michael Costa. Michael, help me out with this, my friend, because I really don't understand how Republicans can be so inconsistent. Well, I didn't understand their hypocrisy either, Trevor, but then I did a little bit of research and I actually figured it out. They're lying. Lying? 
Yeah, it, it's a crazy new thing. And let me explain to you how it works. You say something, but you don't actually mean it. And then you can just do whatever you want. Yeah, but Michael, then people will know that you lied. No, but, but, but see, that's the best part. Because if they call you out, you just lie again. And this just goes on forever and ever until the people you lie to are so worn out and defeated that they have to lie down. That's why it's called lying, Trevor. It's amazing. Have you not heard about this? Yeah, Costa, I, I know what lying is. Uh, well, wh why didn't you tell me about it? All those times that I didn't want to go to a birthday party and I broke my leg, I could have just said I broke my leg. God damn, Costa, how many times did you break your own leg? I have never been to a birthday party. That's how many times. I'm, I'm gonna be lying all the time from now. I'm gonna lie if I don't want to go to a wedding. I'm gonna lie if I don't want to go to book club. I'm gonna lie if I don't want to go to work. Okay, whoa, 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 Costa, don't you start lying to me. Oh, no, Trevor, I, I would never lie to you. Michael, I could see you winking. Oh, damn it. I'm so new to this that I'm not, okay. Hey, I gotta go anyways. I definitely don't have to masturbate. All right, Costa, you don't wait. You know what? Just get out of here, man. Just go. Just. All right, we got to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll look at the amazing legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show, everybody. As we were talking about earlier, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death has sparked a nationwide debate over how and when to replace her. But for this episode, we wanted to spend some time talking about just how irreplaceable she was. Because you see, RBG wasn't just another Supreme Court justice. She was an American icon. Even though she served on the Supreme Court that does most of its work behind closed doors, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, through her intellect, her force of personality, and her determination, somehow became this pop culture favorite. She would cross generations, earning the nickname the notorious RBG. There were books, clothing, tattoos, even a species of praying mantis in her honor. Every time Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent, the internet would explode. People ask me, don't you feel uncomfortable being with a name like the notorious B.I.G. <laughs> why should I feel uncomfortable? We have a lot in common. Yeah, that's right. B.I.G. and R.B.G. did have a lot in common. They're both from Brooklyn. They were both into fancy neckwear. And they both got tired of Diddy trying to steal their spotlights. Not to mention, we all remember R.B.G.'s campaign finance opinion in Citizens United. More money, more problems. So yes, RBG gained more cultural fame than any Supreme Court justice before her, and deservedly so. Because even from the beginning of her life, RBG didn't let societal expectations about women hold her back. Ruth Bader Ginsburg grew up in Brooklyn in a lower middle-class family. When she was in high school, she was a twirler, you know, a cheerleader with a baton. She earned a scholarship to Cornell where she met a jovial sophomore who became the love of her life. He was the first boy I ever knew who cared that I had a brain. A year after Marty enrolled at Harvard Law School, Ruth followed, one of only nine women in a class of more than 550, with a new baby girl in tow. During their time in law school, Marty became very sick. He had cancer. And she basically took all the notes for him and made it possible for him to graduate on time while, in fact, raising their baby and being a law student herself. Ginsburg graduated first in her class. Tied for first. 
We'll call that first. But she didn't get a single offer from a New York law firm. I had three strikes against me. One, I was Jewish. Two, I was a woman. But the killer was I was the mother of a four-year-old child. Damn. She was a brilliant student at the top of her class, but couldn't get a single job? It's like she was a reverse Jared Kushner. I mean, to turn down a brilliant lawyer just because she's a mom, like, what did those guys think was gonna happen? We can't hire her. She's gonna force us to finish our asparagus. But those law firms that didn't hire RBG lived to regret it because she ended up being such an incredible lawyer that she started making history in the Supreme Court long before she got on the Supreme Court. Ruth became a law professor at Rutgers, working towards women's rights. In the 1970s, she founded the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. She wanted to build the idea of women's equality step by step, to, uh, to use each case to move things forward. Between 1973 and 1978, Ginsburg argued six gender discrimination cases before the Supreme Court's all-male bench. Case after case, she slowly broke down barriers of gender discrimination that when you look at them today, you almost laugh at them. We couldn't have our own credit cards, that we couldn't get a mortgage without a man signing, that we couldn't buy a car. There were hundreds, maybe even thousands of state, local, and federal laws that by law barred women from jobs, even from jury service. That's right, people. Before Ruth Bader Ginsburg came along, there were laws preventing women from getting a mortgage, serving on a jury, or even getting their own credit cards, which is mind-boggling. To think this country, this country, ever let misogyny get in the way of something as American as getting people into debt. I mean, women couldn't even serve on a jury. That's why the movie was called 12 Angry Men and not six angry men and six women who'd had enough of their complaining. So after a legal career that changed the lives of literally every woman in America, RBG was nominated to the Supreme Court by President Clinton in 1993. And she used that seat to advocate for the equality of all people, whether her fellow justices agreed with her or not. As a justice, Ginsburg consistently voted in favor of abortion access and civil rights, perhaps her best-known work on the court, writing the 1996 landmark decision to strike down the Virginia Military Institute's ban on admitting women. Ginsburg's opinions helped solidify the constitutional protections she'd fought so hard to establish decades earlier. But in her later years, as the court moved to the right, Ginsburg grew bolder in her dissents. Ginsburg wrote a lengthy, scathing dissent. She was pretty candid in her displeasure with the court's decision. Hubris is a fit word for today's demolition of the Voting Rights Act. And in a landmark case on employment discrimination in 2007, Ginsburg wrote a powerful dissent that prompted Congress to amend the laws. See? That right there, that's how you know RBG was the GOAT. Even when she was in the minority, they used her dissent to change the law. You understand how epic that is? That's like writing a Yelp review so scathing and eloquent that they let you choose what's on the next day's menu. I mean, she won even when she lost. Who else can say that? Well, besides me, who broke into John Oliver's apartment last night and stole his Emmy. <laughs> we should actually probably cut that from the show. I don't want him to know. But the thing I find most impressive about RBG is not just what she accomplished with her work, but just how dedicated she was to doing it, even when it would have been easier to call it quits. 
This woman was determined to do the job that she loved. She loved being the Supreme Court justice. She loved the law. She's famously oh, a workaholic. How much sleep do you get? I can get by in two, not more than four hours. Her grit helped keep her on the bench through colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, and the death of her beloved partner. Justice Ginsburg, even though her husband died yesterday after a battle with cancer, was on the bench. She used to schedule her chemotherapy sessions on Fridays so that she would have the weekend to recover. And during that time, she did not miss a single day on the bench. Instead of concentrating on my aches and pains, I'd concentrate on, on the court's work. Okay, people, that is just awe-inspiring. Throughout multiple battles with cancer, she never stopped working. I mean, one time I missed work for two weeks because my leg fell asleep on the toilet. I mean, I had no choice. I couldn't get up. All I could do was keep scrolling Instagram and hope somebody found me. Have you ever tried that shit? You texting on thing and then the legs go, you can't stay because like your leg can break, I think. It's like a thing I read if you, if you stand on the leg. So look, I know that with RBG's passing, a lot of people right now feel hopeless. They feel defeated and they feel like everything is lost. But if there's one thing that RBG's life shows us, it's that change isn't easy. But if you put in the time, the effort, and the dedication, you can see results. She never gave up, and she never stopped fighting. If anyone lived the biggie line, stay far from timid, only make moves when your heart's in it, and live the phrase, sky's the limit, it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that's why they called her the notorious RBG. Well, that and she might have killed Tupac. All right, we gotta take a quick break, but when we come back, I'll speak to America's most trusted epidemiologist, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with a man you all know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and America's leading infectious diseases experts. We spoke about the state of the pandemic, the hopes for a vaccine, and so much more. Dr. Fauci, welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> Thank you, very nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. Before I ask you about us, I'm going to try as we do in African culture and ask you about you. I know that you had surgery on your vocal cords, something I'm very sensitive to because I too had polyps and I had to get them surgically removed. How are you and how is your voice? I'm actually fine, Trevor. Thank you for asking. You know, I should have had this done literally months ago. Uh, I had kind of uh, strained my voice. I had actually an upper respiratory infection and had a little tracheitis. Usually you rest and let it go away, but that's when things started to explode with COVID-19. And I was literally constantly, and I say not hyperbole, you know, 17, 18 hours a day talking to the point where I just strained it and strained it and strained it. And then I realized my voice was gravelly and I could not get it back to normal. But the surgery was very successful. They removed the benign polyp. And now this is my regular voice. So I, I joke around and in, instead of sounding like Vito Corleone from The Godfather, <laughs> I sound like Tony Fauci from the NIH. As somebody who's had the surgery, I know how horrible it can be. So I'm glad that you have your voice back. And there are a few people who need their voices more than you do, especially considering what's going on right now, not just in America, but around the world. I spoke to you six months ago. The country saw you every day. We, we had a routine. We wake up, we see Dr. Fauci. He gives us an update. We know what we're doing on what we're not doing. Then you disappeared. 
And now I have to rely on Facebook to know how to not or not fight the virus or fight the virus. So where have you been? You know, there's been a change in the intensity with which the coronavirus task force, the White House coronavirus task force, uh, has been involved. It used to be on a daily basis when we were talking about the public health issues. Then there was kind of a switch in a pivoting that was focusing mostly on opening the economy and opening the country, which is a good thing. So we did, we're not meeting as as frequently. And you remember, we used to have like a press conference every single day. Oh, I remember uh, this. And uh, they decided that they were not, they were gonna pull back and have mostly the president give the press conference. And then, you know, we are sometimes on the media, sometimes not. It's kind of erratic. Like on the classic media, you might see me a couple of days in a row and then I'm off for a while. And it's just a question of, whether they have a message that they want out. And if it's the message right. that they want out at that particular day, then you might go out. If not, you don't go out. And that's the reason why I value the, the opportunity to speak with you and to others, because I think we can get the public health measure that I really feel is very important for the health of the American public to be able to say it in a way that's received by the people who really would benefit from it. Yeah, because I'm not gonna lie to you, Dr. Fauci, right now it feels like everyone is making this up as they go along because it doesn't feel like the public has a, a, a solid source from which to deal with, you know? Um, you, you'll hear one thing from the CDC, then another thing from the CDC. We don't know when it gets updated or not. Then the director of the CDC says something, then the president contradicts him. Then, then we hear that this is happening with masks or not masks. We hear that this is happening with vaccines or not with vaccines. Is there a reason there isn't a centralized source of information like there is in, in many other countries around the world? Well, you know, Trevor, that, that's a difficult question to give a satisfactory explanation for because as a matter of fact, there, you know, there has been switches in how the messages have gone out. And you're right. I, you know, f from a research and public health standpoint, I try my best and, and I think I'm successful in giving a consistent message as often as I can get the message out. Something that is just based on the scientific data, based on evidence, which is something that is really very important. One of the things that I think gets in the way is that we, we are in such a divisive uh, state in society that it tends to get politicized. It's almost the one side versus the other. And the thing that I keep saying, and I'll say it very briefly now, because I think it's important, is that everybody feels we need to open the economy, to get people back to work, to get people back to school. But the public health messages that we've given and that you've heard me give back months ago when we used to have the press conferences from the White right. House is that public health measures should be more of a gateway and a pathway to opening the country as opposed to the obstacle to opening the country. So what what has evolved now is that almost people take sides like wearing a mask or not is a political statement. And that's really very unfortunate, totally unfortunate, because this is a purely public health issue. It should not be one against the other. And I think the confused messages that you're alluding to correctly and appropriately is that you don't have a single message when messages get sort of thrown into political buckets. And that's something that I really wish 
that, you know, conversations like you and I are having now would dispel that and put that aside and say, for goodness sakes, I've never had any political ideology that I've made public. I'm really just talking to you about public health. When I'm telling you wear a mask, keep social distancing, avoid crowds, wash your hands, do things outdoors more than uh-huh. indoors. There's nothing political about that. That's a, that's a public health message that we know works because every time groups of people have done that in situations where you've had a surge of infections, the surge has come around and come down. So we have within our capability the, 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 the ability to turn this around. If you were to rate America's response to the coronavirus on a scale of one to 10, as an epidemiologist, where do you rate it? Well, you know, it's very interesting because if you look at the numbers, Trevor, the numbers are telling. We have in this country now, you know, close to 200,000 deaths. We have 6 million plus infections. You can't look at that and say, that's terrific. You know, but if you look at the country, there are parts of the country that have done well, that are doing well. Um, Right now, what I'm liking, what I'm seeing is that some of the numbers are coming down. What I'm concerned about is that our baseline is still very, very high, Trevor. It's like it it never got below 20,000 new cases a day. When we try to open up the economy, as it were, some states jumped ahead of the guidelines. Some people didn't listen to what the governors and what the mayors were saying. And remember, we went way up to 70,000. And now we're coming back down to 30 or 40,000. But the thing I'm concerned about is that as you go into the fall and winter and more things will have to be done indoors rather than outdoors, you want to start off with the lowest possible baseline that you could have. So in the next several weeks, what I would love to see is the country pulling together as a whole to try and get that baseline down so that when we go into the winter and the fall and we perhaps get hit with a flu season, I hope that people will get their flu vaccines, that we're not struggling at a disadvantage because you have a disadvantage when there's community spread and you have 40,000 new infections each day. That is not a good place to be. So let me ask you two questions to that. Number one, how do you respond to the people who say well, the, the, the infection rates shouldn't matter. It's only the death rates that should matter. And even then, the death rates are being inflated. And some people are saying people have died from corona when in fact people are dying with corona, as in they just have corona and they're dying, but it's not corona that causes their death. I think the 200,000 deaths that you're talking about, Trevor, are, are a good reflection of people that likely would not have died <laughs> if they uh-huh. didn't have Uh, this infection. The thing that I think we need to be careful and humble about in that we don't know everything about this infection, but what we're starting to see right now are a couple of things that are troubling to me. And that is that, first of all, more and more young people you see when you look at it are getting into some significant trouble. Not a lot, not a high percentage, that's true. The other thing is that when people get infected, we're seeing more and more of lingering signs and symptoms so that when you clear the virus, you may have weeks or months or so in which you're just not quite right. And the final thing 
is that they've recently done a study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Cardiology, where people who recovered even from disease that wasn't that severe, when you do MRIs or imaging, sensitive imaging, you can see things like inflammation of the heart. Now, they may not be symptomatic, but we wanna make sure that six months or a year from now, they don't wind up with unexplained arrhythmias or premature heart attacks or cardiomyopathies. So the situation is not wrapped up about what is the full impact of this, which means we have to take it very seriously, even among people who are obviously in trouble and die. There's other people that we need to be concerned about. All right, we have to take a quick break, but don't go away, because when we come back, Dr. Fauci will tell you when and where you need to wear a mask. So stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Here's the second half of our interview. Many people say that they will only take a vaccine once Dr. Fauci says the vaccine is safe. My question to you is, if everyone's asking Dr. Fauci, who does Dr. Fauci ask? When do you think a vaccine is safe? I look at the data, Trevor. The, in fact, the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, which is an independent group that monitors the, the trials, they look at the data, they analyze it with independent statisticians, and they will say, this is effective. And then you look at the number of people that have been on the trial for a period of an additional 30 to 60 days, and if you don't see any obvious serious adverse events, then I would consider that effective and safe, and I would take it myself. We know that we should wear masks when we are indoors in a closed environment, but it feels like there's confusion when it comes to a few other things. So I'm just gonna shoot a few rapid fire ones that you have written them down, and you'll just tell me yes or no, whether or not we should be wearing a mask. So uh, should I be wearing a mask if I'm riding my bike out on the street? Not necessarily, no. But you should have it with you in case you come into close contact with people on the outside. But if you're alone and there's nobody near you and you're riding your bike, you don't need to wear the mask. Okay, what about if I'm eating in a restaurant where they are open, should I put my mask on between courses? Because I can take it off to eat. Do I have to put it on between the courses? Yeah, I think because there's enough movement in people that are usually within six feet that you probably should. What I do is I put it around my neck and then I could, you know, eat, drink, and then put it back up when you're waiting for the waiter or something to occur. But now people have said that there's coronavirus on your neck, so should I put it on my neck, or do, can I get coronavirus from my neck when the mask comes back to my mouth? <laughs> Good question. If you just flip it up and down, you, won't, you, you don't want to put your hand on the outside of it. Okay, got it. In an empty elevator, can I, do I put my mask on? Well, you know, the answer is when the door opens, somebody might walk in and you have no idea you know, who's gonna walk in. So you might wanna just keep it on. By the way, let me show you, see this? This is what yeah. I do. You have it on, you go like this, bingo, and you're okay. Then you go like this, bingo, it's up. What if you're talking to somebody and they don't understand what you're saying? Do you pull it down to, do, to say something or do you just like, like practice saying it louder? No, you say it again and repeat it. That's a really good point because when you then put down, you tend to speak louder with more force and that's when all of, the particles, if they're there, if you're infected, will come out. I would leave okay. the mask on. All right, and then my final one. If you are in a movie theater, some people are going to movies around the country and you're watching Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenet, right? And then there's only two people in the cinema. Do you put your mask on or do you keep it off? Well, if they're so physically distanced away from you, you probably could keep it off. But remember, you gotta be careful 
because in the theater, if there's not good ventilation, there could be aerosol in that. Myself, uh, uh, what I would do, I would probably keep it on just to be safe. Because okay. I'm indoors. That's the reason, because I'm indoors. Okay, well, Dr. Fauci, I hope we see you um, again soon. I hope it is not six months, and I hope that we don't have a, a worst case of coronavirus. I hope people wear their masks. Thank you for taking your time. Don't forget to do your vocal warm-ups. It helps me a lot before I, I talk for a long time. And last thing, last thing I will say to you is, would you consider getting one of those celebrity phone numbers so then you could just text everybody personally? Then we could just... Because, like, celebrities text people and go, like, hey, my concert is coming out. You could do that and just tell us, hey, guys, here's the new update for Corona. Just a thought. You should consider it, Dr. Fauci. I will do that. Thank you. Just text the nation. <laughs> Thank you. Look after yourself. And thanks for joining us and again. And you too. Stay safe, bro. Take care. Thank you so much again for your time, Dr. Fauci. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, last week, we introduced the Pandemies, the award show for the most notable achievements of the coronavirus pandemic. And since then, you, you guys at home, cost more than one million votes. Now, obviously, President Trump is trying to throw out half of those votes, but before he can, here are some of the big winners. And the pandemic winners are, for best cure, disinfectant. And then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection. For best bullshit, Kaylee McEnany for I Will Never Lie to You. Will you pledge never to lie to us from that podium? I will never lie to you. You have my word on that. For best foreign film, Italians singing on balconies. Italians locked in their homes under the coronavirus quarantine singing from their windows and their balconies. Outstanding achievement in wishful thinking, Dana Bash for From a Human Standpoint. This was remarkable from the President of the United States. This is um, an important thing to note uh, and to applaud from an American standpoint, from, an, from a human standpoint. For best supporting disaster in a pandemic, gender reveal wildfire. A massive wildfire is burning over 7,000 acres because of a baby gender reveal party that went terribly wrong. For best supporting supporter, Dr. Robert Redfield for your decisive leadership. I want to thank you for your decisive leadership in helping us you know, put public health first. I also want to thank you for coming here today and, and sort of encouraging and bringing energy to the men and women that you see that work every day to try to keep America safe. For the most optimistic performance, Donald Trump for Like a Miracle, It'll Disappear. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle, it will disappear. So there you have it, people. Those are the pandemies. But remember, there are no real winners. Everyone is a loser in 2020. Anyway, thank you so much for joining the fun. And remember, you can go to pandemiawards.com to see all the winners and the nominees. Stay safe out there, wear a mask, and I promise you, I will see you here again tomorrow. You can hold the tape and use my words against me. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.